Good morning. My name is Norma Farthing. On behalf of the teaching team and everybody else here at Grace, welcome. We're so thankful that you're here. In one of my former lives, I taught a Bible study at a church, a college Bible study at a church in a college town. We began in a dressing room outside the baptistry and grew until we filled up the fellowship hall. They were extraordinary students. They loved each other and enjoyed being together. They were eager to study God's word and to grow in their faith. And most of them were actively engaged in personal evangel evangelism, often inviting their friends to church. More than one of them confided to me, there has to be more to Christianity than I've seen in the people around me. Whatever it is, I want it. It's one of my fondest memories of that stage in my life. But there were tense moments. As our class became increasingly diverse, one of the brothers took notice and let me know he didn't like it. He wanted me to tell my class that minorities would not be welcome. Another brother told me I was sinning by teaching men. He wanted me to resign so that a man could take over. Still another told me I was too young to be teaching adults. Wouldn't I be better in the nursery or in the primary classes? And finally, there was the brother who didn't like my wearing pants to church. He advised me that a Christian lady would wear dresses. All these modern Judaizers just happened to be men. But believe me, there were equally strong objections from some of the sisters. Why, you ask, did I put up with it? It was largely, I suppose, my Taipei personality. But embarrassingly for me, my own adherence to the legalism that they espoused. I'll say more about that later. But mostly, it was my devotion to those college students who wanted more than they saw in that church in their churches back home, and even in their own families. And it all reminds me why we still need Paul's letter to the Galatians. The Judaizers told new believers that they couldn't be Christians until they became Jews. There are rules, they argue. Even if you became a Christian through grace, you have to live according to law. 
Last week, Paul defended the truth of the gospel by offering himself as exhibit A for grace, salvation by grace alone. Sola gratia. This week, Paul adds that sanctification is by faith alone. So let's get started. Will you pray with me? Abba, Father, we know that you are here. We acknowledge and bow before your holiness. And we pray that you will speak to us today and transform us for the advancement of your own kingdom and the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Galatians 3, 1 through 5. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Although you began with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by human effort? Have you experienced so many things for nothing? If indeed it was for nothing. Does God then give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or by believing what you've heard? In Galatia, some of those who accepted that they had been saved by grace believed they had to finish what God had started through human effort. And Paul tells, calls them foolish. The word is stupid and even mindless in some translations. They are under the spell of the Judaizers. They've been bewitched. Look at all the remarkable things they experienced. They heard the gospel and believed it. They had seen Christ crucified as vividly as if they had been there when he was. Jesus was dead. Yet Jesus was alive. The gift of the Holy Spirit proved the resurrection to them and through them. They had received the Holy Spirit and witnessed miracles. And all this, all this, before they had ever even heard there was a law. The Holy Spirit is central in Paul's entire argument. Did you receive the Spirit? After beginning with the Spirit, does the Spirit give, uh, did God give you His Spirit? God sent His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The presence of the Spirit in the Galatian churches is presented 
as irrefutable evidence that those Gentile believers who called God Abba, Father, were true children of God. Despite all this, the Galatians seemed unable to experience grace. That's a problem for many of us. We need to experience grace. Not just know about it or assent to it intellectually. If we grew up in homes where love was conditional, and to some degree, it always is, right? Even if we were not aware of it, that's how we experienced our life as children. Our parents' acceptance was based on our performance. If we did well, we experienced our parents' approval. If we did not, we experienced their disapproval. Those were just the rules. And we concluded that's how it must be with our Heavenly Father. Let me remind you, though, what, Jesus, uh, what the Father said of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son. I am very pleased with him. Think about that. He had not performed a miracle. He had not preached a sermon. He had not called a disciple. Jesus hadn't done anything at that point. Nothing. Yet here's the father from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I, in whom I am well pleased. And... That what's true for Jesus, y'all, is true for his adopted brothers and sisters. We don't have to do anything. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, so then understand that those who believe are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the, the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel to Abraham ahead of time, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who believe are blessed along with Abraham, the believer. It's really neat here how Paul flips the Judaizers argument and uses it against them. No doubt they had been citing Abraham to prove their false doctrine. But wherein did Abraham specifically please God? It was not by doing the works of the law because the law didn't exist for another almost 500 years. Rather, Abraham pleased God by taking God at his word in a great act of faith, he simply believed God. Paul argued that Abraham, like everybody else, was saved by faith. He uses Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Genesis 15:6. To ground his claim that God has a history of recognizing faith alone. If the teachers who came after Paul claimed that their teaching was to be preferred 
because it was based on the historical action of Israel's God, Paul just shot them down because they did not have history on their side. Notice, too, that Abraham believed God. The text doesn't say he believed in God, although he surely did. Rather, he believed God. And what exactly did Abraham believe? During their many years together, God made many promises to Abraham, and Abraham believed every one of them. Most significantly, Abraham believed God's promise that despite all the odds against them, he and his wife Sarah would have a son. Through that son, God would give Abraham countless descendants. And in Abraham, all the nations of the earth, specifically the Gentile nations, would be blessed. From that, Paul concluded that just like the Galatians, Abraham heard and believed the gospel. And it was his faith that saved him. If that's true, if faith alone is sufficient, why did God give the law? It is his law, after all, and everything God does is good, right? Why the law? Paul addresses that. Now, before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being kept as prisoners until the coming faith would be revealed. Thus, the law had become our guardian until Christ, so that we could be declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Jesus, you are all children of Abraham through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants and heirs according to the promise. To explain the role of the law, Paul uses a metaphor familiar to his audience. In Greek and Roman households, educated slaves supervised children. Their conduct, their dress, their morality their behavior, discipline, everything. They escorted children to school, and they helped with homework. When those kids grew up, though, they ceremonially exchanged the clothing of children for an adult-sized toga, and they became heirs to everything their family owned. Ties with the tutor were severed. Paul reminds the Galatians that they no, no, no longer need supervisors. You are God's grown-up children, he reminds them. 
why don't you put on your big kid clothes and live like it? Moreover, all of you were baptized into, who, have, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul adds, that should do it, right? Putting on Christ is a familiar metaphor in Paul's letters. It means that the righteousness of Jesus Christ covers our sinful nakedness so that when God looks at us, he sees only Jesus. We can't cover our nakedness with our own self-righteousness any more than Adam and Eve could clothe theirs with fig leaves. And Paul takes it even further. He has already stressed the truth of spiritual equality in Galatians. All are equally sinners, and all are equally saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But now he really drives home the point. All these baptized into Christ folks are one in Christ. Last week we noted that nobody is more justified than anybody else. This week it's clear that nobody is more equal than anybody else. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Every day as a Pharisee, good Pharisee, Paul had prayed thanking God that he was not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Every day. Then God saved Paul and revealed to him the fallacy of such spiritual snobbery. Those distinctions no longer exist, he declares. You're all one in Christ. All one. Jews, Gentiles, slave-free, men, women, all one. That is the truth in Galatians that changed my life. going to try to tell this without crying, but if I do, forgive me, okay? That is the truth in Galatians that changed my life. For me, it was an evolutionary experience, not a once-for-all-time event. I didn't have a Damascus Road experience like Paul's, but I did have a conversion experience. And at age nine, nothing much changed for me. My life of school, play, church, friends, family went on pretty much the way it did before I became a Christian. I knew I was a Christian. Then pushing 30, long married, and desperate for children, just like Abraham, right? Desperate for children. I became a person of prayer. Mostly I prayed for children, of course. 
still. The more I prayed, the more real Jesus became to me. We grew to be friends and conversation partners. And the stronger that relationship became, the less it mattered to me whether he gave me kids. I began to realize that Jesus was giving me something better. Himself. And I wanted that. I really wanted to know him. Not about him. Him. So I got serious about Bible study. Not commentaries, not devotional books, not books about the Bible. The Bible. <laughs> I knew a lot of it by heart, of course. We were big on chapter and verse. But it's very different when you dig into the Word seriously looking for Jesus. And like Paul, I refused to be taught by anybody. I wanted the Holy Spirit to teach me. And before long in my study, I came to Galatians. What happened that made Jesus flesh and blood to me? One word, Galatians. Galatians. To this day, I am absolutely blown away by how real Paul's defense of the gospel makes Jesus and the meaning of a person's relationship with him. Every argument in Galatians focuses ultimately on Jesus. And always, Jesus is Lord. And Paul's recognition of another gospel was really cogent with me, really. I couldn't dismiss it as true for other people and not for me. I understood that I had fallen prey to another gospel. I understood that I too had been like those foolish, stupid, mindless Galatians living by a set of rules based largely on what I had been taught and equating um, legalism with spirituality. The two are not the same. Once I grasp what it means to be a child of Abraham, to be the offspring of the free woman. We didn't have that today, but it's in there. To be the offspring of the free woman. To be grown up and not a little kid led around by the hand and taught by other people. And especially when Galatians 3.28 drove me to my knees in sheer gratitude for who I am in Christ Jesus. Well, there was no turning back. No turning back. Just as Paul withstood Peter to his face, I began to stand up to the other gospel crowd. 
got me in a lot of trouble. But that's a story for another day. Let it suffice now to tell you just one thing. One tenet of modern Judaism is tell me the time and the place. They would have you believe that if you cannot identify the time and the place when you became a Christian, you cannot possibly be one. Well, that's not in the Bible. And if you were very young, as I was, it might not have made a big impression on you. In a couple of decades of youth ministry, I never once asked a kid, can you tell me the time and the place when you were saved? My first question was always, who is Jesus? Tell me about your relationship with Jesus right now. Who is Jesus? Parents and other adults were often frightened by that and subsequently by me. In fact, some of you may be feeling a little uncomfortable just hearing me say that. But y'all, it's still the most compelling question to ask today. We are about to take an offering essential to our ministries locally and around the globe. Essential. And then we'll observe Holy Communion. This table is open to everybody. There is no litmus test for who's welcome. Everybody's welcome. Nobody here decides who's in and who's out. You know, we've been talking about that. Who's in and who's out. We're all in. But the Bible does teach us to examine ourselves. So there's no better time than now to ask the question, who is Jesus to you? Right here, right now. Who is Jesus? Do you know for sure that Jesus is alive? And do you have his spirit, his Holy Spirit living in you? If so, what earthly difference is it making in your life? Please think about that as we prepare for communion. Recalling how on the night he was arrested, Jesus took bread, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, he took the cup, blessed it, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the remission of sins. This is what we celebrate in Holy Communion. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the table.